human first, everything else after. Welcome to What's Betwixt Us, stories of working while human. I'm Lissa Mandel. What's Betwixt Us is a series of conversations about empathy at work, at work. It's about diving into the messiness and the specificity of being human on the job, any job, and how empathy isn't just a nice-sounding buzzword for company PR. It's a rebellious act of remembering that we're human first, everything else after. Today on What's Betwixt Us, I chat with author and licensed psychotherapist Linda Fader. We celebrate the release of her new collection of short fiction, All's Fair and Other California Stories, and talk about the deep kinship between psychology and writing, and the human need to both listen and tell stories as a way to know ourselves and each other better. Linda says, all of human connection takes a certain amount of risk. Please enjoy episode 36, Coast to Coast and Cover to Cover with Linda Fader. Hello, listeners of What's Betwixt Us. I am so delighted today to welcome um, a licensed psychotherapist and writer, and uh, she's recently released a short story collection called All's Fair and Other California Stories. We've already been talking <laughs> off the recording, and we, we have so much to say, so I'm so delighted to introduce Linda Fader. Hi, Linda. Hi, Liza. It's so nice to talk to you. <laughs> I don't even know where to start. But I guess we should start with your book because that's, you know, it's timely and it kind of segues into this idea of connecting with people, with the depth of people through a snapshot. And I would love to hear you uh, just give a brief uh, synopsis of what the book is. I have a little bit of an idea of it Mm -hmm. and why you like the format of Mm -hmm. stories specifically Mm -hmm. as a writer. Mm -hmm. So, so my collection takes place in California, where I'm originally from, and there are 13 diverse stories. So they're not connected, but I like the idea of, of the short story because to me, it's like a snapshot. It's like a photograph of a moment in time in a character's life that you just catch something. Mm-hmm. Uh, unlike, let's say, a film, which to me feels more like a novel, right? You you span a long period of this life or, or, or this period in a character's life and it has time to unfold and reveal, which is wonderful too. But a short story to me is, is, is very, it's, it's, it's like a little time capsule, like a little moment caught. And they're usually poignant moments. They're searching for that one thing that's just going to pierce your heart a little bit. Mm-hmm. And, and that's what I love about the form. And it's also, you know, it's, it's distilling things down to an essence that I like also. I'm, I'm attracted to that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's why I love the form. Yeah. It's, I, I love that. I resonate with it so much. And I think that, I don't know, like as writers we're looking for that like granule of like truth with a capital T. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I love the idea of a collection that has many different stories that are only tied by this one, the one thread of location, mm-hmm. right? Uh, because I think that really encapsulates what it is like to live in an urban place. Absolutely. And, and trying to capture all the different voices 
-hmm. in a place, right? Because they're myriad and that interests me. And California, like New York, is one of those places where there's so many diverse types of people. Mm -hmm. So I was trying to capture that, to capture the flavor of Californians and all their diversity and all the things that they might struggle with, searching for human connection, which I think is such a strong, a strong mot human motivation under this, under this, you know, I think the thing about California is the sky and nature is so prevalent, mm -hmm. right? It's so, the sky is so huge, it's dominant. Mm -hmm. And humans are kind of underneath that sky and it kind of sh it reveals everything in a way, the light. Yes, mm -hmm. oh, I love that, I love that. And I felt very much like that when I lived there. So of course I live in New York, you live in New York on Long Island. As you said, you made the reverse commute of moving from California to New York when most people go in the other direction. I've found that to be true as well. But when I was living out there, wherever I went, I could see the mountains, you know, and they were a reminder of how, and not in a depressing way, but how insignificant my, my human dramas were, that there was this larger picture and it was such a comfort to me. Um, and so I, I feel like a place, like geographical place is, is important to you, seems to factor into your work. And I wonder if you could speak to how geographical place has influenced your development as a person who's interested in human connection. Hmm. Yeah, I think you're right about that, about California. Nature is always prevalent, right? You've, you've got the mountains in the distance. You've got that sky that's so enormous and desert and you know ocean and it and it's very um, dramatic to me out west mm -hmm. you don't have as much a sense of that in new york right you you have light pollution you don't really see the stars and i mean there's a lot of great things about new york don't get me wrong but someone once said that new york is about human nature and california is about nature oh, that's brilliant yes right uh, i thought wow you know that's so true and, and I remember feeling that when I first came to New York City, feeling like I was living in a funnel, like I couldn't see the sky. It bothered me for about two years <laughs> until I acclimated. I think that there's something about that, that landscape that has brought people to it, right? And that's one of the things I love about California and its quirkiness. People, people go there. I mean, I did the reverse commute. Most people go there in searching for something. Right, it's, whether you're talking about the early pioneers, head west, go west, and, uh, or the gold, people searching for gold, or I think in more modern times, people seeking a radical new way of life. You know, there are a lot of seekers in California. There are a lot of people that follow different uh, leaders, or I'm, I'm not talking cultish, but I'm talking looking for a new way of life, breaking from tradition, right? The further yeah. you go west, it always seems like things get watered down a little bit more, those strong immigrant ties, those strong exactly. traditions, right? You can go west and sort of become whatever you want. Become whoever, whoever you want to be or whatever feels um, more authentic to you. And there's something about promise, right? There's like the, the promise of expansion. Yes. Um, and the sun setting, like it's just following the sun. Anyway, I truly, I could talk about California all day, but I wanna talk about this connection between these two careers that you have blended together so seamlessly in a way that you have blended New York and California within yourself as a person. 
tell me about what led you to become a psychotherapist and how you find it connected to like to, to writing or to your desire to write because I've read some of your articles and I, I, I love how like bound they are to each other. Mm. Yeah, it's so exciting for me to talk about this with you because that's not always the case everywhere. <laughs> um, and, and this is really a, a very passionate topic for me. And, and maybe because I began to realize it more and more, I, I mean, I started out as a creative writer. I went to get my master's in creative writing and literature from the University of Houston way back when and had some wonderful mentors and experiences and was trying to publish my stories in journals and had some success, but it's a very tough, tough road, right? Uh, and then I began to, I moved to New York and I was teaching literature and you know freshman essay writing for a while at School of Visual Arts and a few other schools around and kind of trying to make it work for myself. And then at some point I realized, boy, I need, I need like a real career that's gonna be solid for me. I was going through a divorce at the time. So I realized I, I think I need to get more serious about career. So it was either going back for a PhD and trying to get a professor job somewhere, but that could be anywhere. You know, it's not always easy to get them where you want to be. Right, um, right. And, and I had also had my own um, experience of therapy and was really inspired by it. And so I audited a few courses at NYU and just fell in love with it. So I had this whole career shift and had kind of set aside my creative writing to write more scholarly types of papers as I was working through graduate school and beginning to set up um, my practice and my work. And you know, I would only say it's now when I've come back to my writing in the last several years that I realized the connection. Mm -hmm. uh, and I didn't really, I thought I'd just completely put it aside, but I really hadn't. There is something about therapy and writing that are the same creative process. Uh, and I've realized that more and more. And at the basis of that is humans need to tell stories. You know, we're storytellers. Human nature is by its essence, I think, different from ever other species because we have this innate need to tell stories, our stories, other people's stories. You know, I think when I was looking back at teaching literature, one of my most one of the, the opening lines I love so much that touches me so much is from Homer's The Odyssey, right? Which I had to teach to poor suffering freshmen. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Try that one. But, but the line that begins it in the translation I love, and let me see if I can remember it. Sing in me, muse, and through me tell the story. Mm. Oh, I love that opening line. It kills me every time because it seems to me like this voice from the ages, right? Yes. Coming down through centuries to us. And it's so true, right? This person, this bard calling a muse, mm -hmm. a creative spirit mm -hmm. to have the, the strength and the creativity to tell the story to the listeners who've gathered around. And I think, wow, you know, and that's not unlike what I feel like when I have clients that come in and sit down with me and begin slowly to tell their story and put words to kind of the ineffable, right? It's that experience that 
that we all have that we can't quite put into words. And I think a lot of my work with clients is about helping them put things into words that they can't yes. or they're struggling with. And I think as a writer, it's the same thing. You're trying to capture the ineffable, that, that experience into words that somehow mean something, right? That's developing this character. I just have had like so many downloads in the past few seconds while you were talking about this <laughs> because this, this, the first line of the Odyssey reminds me of, you know, Elizabeth Gilbert's big magic where she talks about creators as being vessels and, you know, you set the state, you make your vessel a welcome place for the muse to come through you, whatever it is. Yes. And it's just dawned on me that with what you do as a therapist it's like you're asking to be an open vessel as like a divine listener almost, as opposed to a divine creator, but you need both sides of that, right? There's the person sharing the story and there is the other who is hearing the story. And uh, it's like you are, as a therapist, it's like you assist the muse in coming through the speaker. That's, that's a really interesting way of putting it. I think, you know, it's such a privilege to be chosen to sit with someone and really try to connect with them because that's so important to have that empathic connection to right. be a healer, right. but to be entrusted with, with yeah. things that maybe someone has never told another human being in their life, right? To get to that point where they unburden themselves with maybe a secret that was too difficult to ever share mm -hmm. and and what a you know what an honor that is to be sitting there and feel trusted enough to be told something like that right so there's that and then I think then the other part of it is you know listening to their story asking questions being very curious not feeling you have all the answers yes. but I think slowly in that process you begin to connect dots with them that illuminate patterns that illuminate, connect what they're experiencing today with other things that help illuminate it and help them put their experiences into words. Yes. And once they can put it into words, there's a healing process that happens, right? Now I know what this is. Mm -hmm. Exactly. It's like, it's alchemizing uh, an ineffable experiential thing into something tangible that like, that exists on this plane. Right which is what a writer does too. And exactly, you're making characters, you're doing the same process. You're, you're mining that character, looking for patterns, looking for the struggle and creating a character. So it's a similar kind of experience I find. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I feel like what you do is, is like on the grand scale, like that, you know, because you, you, you set aside, you know, 15 minutes for a person and it's all about them and, and that connection between you and them. And I wonder if you could speak to like how an, how an average, nobody's average, how a person who uh, is just going about their day and they're not a therapist, you know, they're not in therapy, but they still need to connect with the people that they work with and see on a daily basis, but they only have like a tiny sliver of, you know, time or, or opportunity to do that. And I wonder what, learnings you could share from being a professional deep listener and deep communicator how can people bring that into their daily life like how 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 can we blend it in especially if we're not sitting in a room with somebody 
Yeah, that's that's a, a, a wonderful question for the time, right? Because we're all working more remotely lately. And I don't know that that's going to end. I think it'll be some sort of hybrid situation yeah. going forward. Who knew? It's like a revolution, isn't it? I know. And I know. Work. I love it. Yeah, and it happened very fast. And it's it's got some wonderful attributes, but it also can feel a little distancing, mm-hmm. right? We can experience each other on a screen, but there is something magical to being in a room with someone, right? There's an energy. Yes. That's that's in in a room Mm -hmm. and so how do we how do we do that now how do we connect you know if we're not seeing people in the office or I I mean even in the office it can be tough right if you not feeling connected to the people there and finding your people that you feel you can connect with and that takes time Mm -hmm. so you know I always tell my clients it takes time to build friendship takes time to build connections you have to be willing to put the time in Right. You have to be willing to stick your neck out and ask, do you want to go to lunch? Do you want to meet for, you know, a drink after work? Do you want to have coffee? Do you want to go to this with me? And that that's a certain vulnerability for some people. For some people, it's easier than for others. But to stick your neck out and say, you want to do this with me is also asking do you like me? <laughs> Could yeah. you maybe like me? Yeah. Right. And that, that's sometimes really hard um, yeah. to make yourself vulnerable. And so you have to be ready to not see it as a failure if they don't want to, you know, try yeah. someone else. Right. But I think all of human connection takes a certain amount of risk. I always have a lot of clients who are worried about getting hurt in a new relationship. And what I say to them is, Love is always a risk. It doesn't matter if you're married 50 years, it's still a risk, right? You, you put your heart in somebody's hands and it's a risk. Mm-hmm. But what's the alternative? Mm-hmm. You're going to be alone your whole life? Um, make no friendships, make no partnership. It's always a risk. But as long as you keep a sense of yourself in your life, your friendships, your um, interests, hobbies, different things, you might get hurt by someone, but you'll still be okay, mm-hmm. right? As long as you keep a sense of yourself, you'll, you'll be okay, whatever happens. It reminds me of, um, uh, you know, like being a, um, a blade of grass that can be blown by the wind, but is flexible as opposed to like a twig, that if it's blown, it could crack, right? Mm-hmm. So like having that foundation in yourself. That's so um, true. Right. And that you'll be able to flow with it. You might get hurt. It might hurt a while, but you'll be okay. Mm. Right. I I think most people fear uncomfortable feelings like I I, I don't want to cry. I don't want to feel pain. But all those feelings pass. Right. And it's okay to feel those things. You're you're not going to melt or or die. It will pass. I mean, that's something that actually we're talking about in this, you know, therapy program that I'm in right now that we assign feelings as being good or bad, but really no feelings are good or bad. They might be uncomfortable, but like paradoxically, the more we push them away or repress them or pretend they're not there, you know, the bigger they become. And so the idea is just embrace the discomfort for a moment and it will pass through on its own. Right. Yeah. That program sounds so interesting that you're doing. (laughs) I love it. 
It's awesome. right? because because it's true that when you were talking about the somatic experience, when you when you don't have full expression or comfort in expressing your feelings and you suppress them, they go somewhere. Exactly. Right. They go somewhere. Yeah. Either depression or anxiety or or suddenly you got aches and pains you didn't have in your back or your stomach mm -hmm. and they go somewhere mm -hmm. so you know there's a great saying you're as sick as your secrets and um oh i've never heard that before you like that one <laughs> <laughs> me too yeah you're as sick as your secrets because it doesn't mean that you have to run around with a megaphone but certainly you need a few people in your life that you feel safe enough to tell what's burdening you. Yeah. Otherwise it's going somewhere. Exactly. You know, that's why people end up drinking or, or right. um, depressed or, you know, there's this tapped in secret. And most people, most people think that their secret is the worst thing in humankind, right? That in your, if you're left to your own devices, your secret can have a life of its own in your head. Yes. That really grows into the monster. And it's only when you sometimes reveal it to others and get feedback that, oh yeah, I felt that way before, <laughs> or, or that happened to me. And, you know, suddenly you're connected with humanity and you realize that your own secret is not so weird, right? It's probably more normal than you think and more of common than you think. You know, people that suffer abuse, sexual abuse or physical abuse often walk around feeling like the three-headed monster most of their lives until they realize, oh, you know, I don't have to feel so ashamed of this. Other people have experienced this and recovered and I'm not such a freak, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. That's a very powerful thing to experience. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, we were talking a little bit before the call about, you know, the, the future of work, the direction that work is moving in, in terms of things like vulnerability becoming more prevalent, you know, as concepts and, you know, so many companies like changing their perspective on it so that they are seeing employees more as a holistic person and not just as a, as, as a cog in a machine who completes this one task. And I wonder what your thoughts are on that. I mean, cause I'm sure that you speak to people, you know, about their, their work experiences and over the past year and a half, as it's shifted so much, how people feel about work sort of like changing in terms of how it shows up in their lives or how they have to show up at work, where there's this blending of personal and the work and you know like it's it's becoming a, a blurred line and I think that there are positives and negatives to that but I'm just curious what you're what you're finding as it changes so fast yeah it's really interesting I am meeting more people who because of COVID they've had realizations about work-life balance it's such an interesting time, right? It's like a revolution in my mind. I mean, I feel like we're going to look back at this in history and talk about it like a, a type of a revolution. And particularly in America, where I think you live to work in some yes. ways, right? I've heard that described by Italian friends who say, you know, here you live to work. In Italy, we work to live. Yes. And I always found that very interesting, right? And there's got to be a balance between those two places. And I think 
COVID gave everybody the opportunity to see <laughs> what that was like, right? Oh, I can work from home and still have time to duck out for my doctor's appointment or pick my kid up from school or actually have a family dinner mm-hmm. and how important that is. Mm-hmm. So I, I really love what this new work-life balance has done for families because wow. I've heard families be able to have dinners together for the first time in a long time. Mm-hmm. And that's so sad to me that that wasn't something that most families could do. Yeah. yeah. Right. I mean, I mean, that's a gathering time at the end of the day for people to share and feel connected. And I think kids thrive on that. And it makes oh, me sad that that's not a part of everybody's life. Well, hopefully um, we're moving in the direction where it becomes. Yeah. Better. Or that people would put off doctor's appointments because they couldn't take time off from work yeah. or, or that you couldn't. Uh, run to take care of an aging parent or get them to a doctor because you know your commute was two hours away (laughs) and there was no way you were going to get back on your lunch break I mean the pressure's on people so maybe this allows for more fluidity and more you know more access to to that work-life balance because hopefully companies are seeing that it it doesn't have to be such a grind all the time for it to be productive it, it can't. It can't. This is like burnout on a mass scale. Yeah. And yeah. it's just that enough people are having the conversation at the same time that there's sort of this tipping point where yeah. it used to be that employees just had to tolerate whatever it was, even as the vice was tighter and tighter and tighter. And 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 now there's like a, enough people saying, I'm not going to put up with that anymore. And yeah. And the employers are having to respond. I hear a lot of younger people who are just really not willing to go back to work five days a week. So it's kind of like, well, if you want me, I need a hybrid situation and employers are, are doing that. Yeah. Uh, more and more I'm hearing. Yeah. But, but what's also interesting is that there are a lot of people who haven't gone back to work and I wonder what that's about. And I don't think we know yet. There seems to be, mm-hmm. you know, wanted hiring signs and so many windows. I don't know if you've been seeing that, but I, I have around here and I've been wondering what, what is that about? Is it that people are evaluating what they want to do now? They're not willing to go back to what they were doing. Not sure. Yeah. Yeah. There are, I've read many articles in the space about the great resignation, which I think is related that people are realizing the value of their time and the value of their autonomy and how their energy is finite and where am I gonna spend that energy? And because there's power in numbers and there are enough people who are also like, wait a second, I was feeling sort of dead inside doing that. So why should I just go back? There are enough people saying that, that there's power to actually change the systems, you know, to actually change the structures where before it was like, if you didn't, if you felt dead inside at your job, well, you're on your own. I mean, good luck out there. But I, I wonder about like, the other side of that, where it's like now people have more time and space to be connecting with their families and their loved ones, but actually at work, and at least what we do at Zany, you know, is about building connection over time, uh, just as you would in real life, uh, but trying to duplicate that on Slack, asking people to be more vulnerable and personal with their colleagues and how, you know, just the right amount of that can actually increase productivity, increase general well-being, you know, the morale is higher. I, like, I wonder how you, how we find that balance so that we don't over-identify with work in a whole different way. 
right? Mm -hmm. Where people know everything about us. So it's like, how do you figure out the boundaries? How do you figure out what to share, what not to share? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, I always say that there's, you're in control of the drawbridge, right? And, mm -hmm. and you can lift the drawbridge up you know, if, if you feel you've shared enough or you're not willing to share something, you're in charge of that. And I think some people who are a little more introverted find lower drawbridges in work environments that are too lowered a little intimidating, right? It's, mm -hmm. so, so I always try to work with people to say, you know, you're, you're in charge now of, of your own drawbridge and you can decide who you feel safe with. In, in, in talking about more vulnerable things and, and whether you want to keep it, where you want to keep that bridge, right? That, that door, do I want to open it wide or do I want to keep it a little halfway? And, and what's my comfort level with that? For yeah, some wow. people, they're very comfortable talking about many personal things right away. Mm -hmm. And sometimes they give inspiration and courage to those who are less comfortable with it. And there's always that mix in a work environment, right? There's always a lot of personalities and different types of people. But you're right that when you're a little bit vulnerable with people, you become closer. Mm -hmm. People feel a sense more of some connection, of being connected by humanity. I mean, that's one of the things I love about fiction because you can read a character that's so completely different from yourself. Mm -hmm. And yet you can see aspects of yourself or you can identify with them for a little while. You can be in their shoes and, yeah. and feel what it is to be uh, an Indian man living in India, you know, a, a former slave, any experience, right? You can delve into a book and feel that so right. completely when you, when you enter a character's world. So, you know, maybe there's a little bit of that need when we're in a workplace and you meet a coworker and they say something to you and it, Kind of connects to something you've experienced and suddenly you are connected by this kind of yeah. empathic right so connection and now i feel you and you feel me and we are becoming closer and that doesn't that motivate people to go to work i mean it yes, makes you feel right you feel makes seen you feel seen and understood as a whole person yeah, yeah. Yeah. And it seems like um, companies are more aware of that now. They seem to set up, what do you call them, like personnel building, bringing people together, mm -hmm. trying to do outings where people bond. Because mm -hmm. I think they see that kind of pays off in morale and the way people show up to work. Right, right, right. And it's like doing all these, these team building. Team building has always been, a, you know, a part of, you know, corporate structure. And now it has to be creative because it can't, necessarily be in person because there are companies where people are all over the world so how do you how do you foster that same or as close as you can to that same sense of connection without actually being with people I mean that's challenging isn't it question. Mm -hmm. it's really challenging can you do it over zoom yeah. uh, maybe you can Maybe you can. I think that you would need a really good facilitator for something like that right to oh, help yeah mm-hmm to help people get together in a Zoom room and and talk about themselves in a way that didn't feel contrived, right? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's what's hard, right? It's like, it's such a precious and fragile thing to talk about real vulnerability 
because actual vulnerability is hard, is risky, but then it be, you hear about it over and over and over and over again, and then it becomes this nice, like this nice sounding word that you can package into, you know, marketing materials. And it's like, that doesn't actually, that's not the real thing. No. I, and as you were talking, I was just imagining one of these, these potential experiences. Like if, yes. if people got together in a workforce for one of these experiences and and how would you open up a discussion that pe where people would feel more comfortable speaking about their feelings in this time? And I was thinking, oh, it'd be wonderful to have people get together and talk about their experience in this new hybrid life and what they liked about it, what they didn't like about it in a way that they felt safe. Because I, I do hear people talk about they love the flexibility, but they sometimes don't know how they're doing. Yeah. The young people. Like I, I don't have feedback. I don't really know how I'm doing. And that feels, that feels anxiety producing for me. Or, uh, so, you know, it would be really interesting to share those feelings in a way, in a, in a forum where you didn't feel like you were going to be punished and told to come back to work <laughs> all the time. Uh, right. But that kind of a thing would be a starting point maybe for, for more vulnerable discussion. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it can be, it can be alienating. Freedom and flexibility is incredible. But then I know for me, you know, I, I work from home now, but I never did before. I was always working in person with people. And even on days when I would work from home, I would go to a coffee shop just because when I have other people around me, it's like, oh, I'm doing okay. I'm a human I'm doing human things. This is how we operate. But so much of, of remote and hybrid work has really siloed people so that there's no, like, we can't exist in a vacuum. We know who we are by, by virtue of the context. And if there's no context, then we're floating around in space. Yeah. And I think those are really great questions for a company to do in, in, in a team building exercise. How is that for people? Because I think you're right that there are these silos and there's so much siloing, right? There's, there's silo in the workplace, there's silo in the kind of information we're getting now. People are getting more and more of just their silo of information. Mm -hmm. And all of that is a little alienating from one another. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure of the impact of that on, on generations. I think, I think that there's going to be a real need to connect if we're working from home. There's gonna be a real need for venues and different areas where you can connect with people because I think you can you know solitary confinement in prisons can drive people crazy for reason, right we're not we're not meant to be alone all the time right right <laughs> right is a virtual connection enough good question right that is the question mm -hmm. that is the question that we will continue to to ask yeah I want to I want to bounce back to your writing for a little bit because you mentioned, you know, being in other people's shoes. And when I read that in, in, in your articles, and I agree, that is like definition of empathy, right? But as a writer, I, I write mostly about my own personal experience, like essays about my own emotional inner life, because that's the only, my voice in my head is so loud. How do you, as a writer, create these vivid whole characters that aren't you and they aren't people you know. What is the what is the process of getting inside somebody else's head like that? Yeah. I it, it's funny. Some writers love to write in mind their own experiences and I applaud them. I think there, there's some obviously wonderful writings that that stem from that. 
and I, for some reason, I've never been interested in that as much. Not that my own life hasn't been interesting because it has really, but I, it's more that um, maybe I'm just more interested in entering another character's world. And maybe that's why I'm a therapist too. It's interesting, right? Those two connections. But I love, uh, most of my characters come from an interest. And in my stories, it's often been catching a character in a brief moment. I mean, my, my story, Grace, started in Ojai, California. I was working at Bart's Books, one of the only oh, you know, outdoor- you at Bart's. Do you know Bart's? Oh you yeah, I Bart's. love Ojai. Oh, I lived in Ojai for a year when I was preparing for grad school and writing. I wrote and quintessential, right? I was working in a bookstore, writing for the local newspaper and then going home at night and, and writing short stories to get into a graduate school program in writing. And Bart's Books was a wonderful place to sit and work and uh, watch people come in and out of there. And there was just a customer who came in once, a woman who was barefoot with her little boy, you know, kind of mindlessly dragging her little boy into the store. And I don't know, they, they just struck me for some reason, the way that their body language was, what was going on between the two of them, how she kind of absently drove him into like a kid's book stall and then just sat kind of, you know, shaking her foot and smoking a cigarette. Mm -hmm. And she looked kind of stressed, mm -hmm. but she was still trying to be a good mom, yeah. you know, bringing her kid into the kid's booth and let him read some books while I sort out what's going on in my head. Yeah. And I just was so struck by this. And I don't know, I, I, you know, I went home and I started writing a story about what I imagined was happening in their lives. Yeah. So that's the kind of thing that just captures my imagination. I was teaching ESL in California and I had wonderful experiences with new Mexican immigrants who were really trying to figure out their lives. And mm -hmm. I was struck by one, one woman and I didn't write her life exactly. I didn't know her life, but I imagined her life in California. And that was Marta del Angel, which is another um, story in the collection that's about a Mexican immigrant woman who uh, marries an American man and feels like she's now made the dream and then he deserts her and what she's left trying to figure out with her, her American girlfriend. And that just came out of one experience and one moment where just someone catches my attention and I think about them and then it turns into a story in my head. I love that. It's like, um, you know, you were saying before about people realizing that they, they might have different experiences, but they have a, a feeling understanding in common, right? Like a felt experience in common, sort of like a, a we, in acting conservatory, we talked about thematic chords. Like we all have certain thematic chords that resonate really deeply with us. So it's like the essence of, you know, the nature of the feeling as opposed to, you know, the specifics of like the who, what, where. Absolutely. That, that, that's a great way of putting it. And I even find that even though my stories are not about me, Whenever I go back and read them, I'm always surprised to see something shows up that reminds me of me. You know? oh, that's amazing. <laughs> Might not be an actual situation, mm -hmm. but maybe it's a turn of phrase or way someone thought about something, or maybe a theme that I say, oh, well, that's interesting that I 
came to that theme because that's something that I've kind of thought about in my own life. So it's funny how you, you may not write about yourself, but somehow parts of you come out mm-hmm. in whatever creative process you're, you're in, right? Yeah. Um, did that answer your question? I kind yeah. Of, oh, this I'm is great. This, yes. That's okay. Good. 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 <laughs> <laughs> as a, okay. So somebody who, as a writer and a psychotherapist, both of these trades in which you are learning about the human experience, what advice would you give to people about how to be a better connector, how to be a better human connector? Hmm. Yeah. I think being inquisitive, right? Asking people questions about themselves. I think that that always makes people feel connected. I mean, there's nothing worse than being at a party and just talking to someone who's just talking about themselves, right? Yeah. I mean, you just feel invisible. Yeah. And I think that when we're inquisitive about others and others' experiences and we ask questions of them, not in a prying way, but just in a general interest way, I think some people like to feel heard, to feel seen. And that's something that connects us. So I would say that would be first and foremost. And then I think it's just about, you know, taking risks to stick yourself out there a bit which isn't always easy, particularly as we work from home and we become a little more siloed off. It's harder to make that conversation. You know, I love going to the dog park here and just talking to other dog owners and suddenly you're in these great conversations, right? But you've got to put yourself there and you've got to not stand alone and, and look like, you know, I'm not open to talking to you, but really project, hi, how are you? What's right. your dog's name, right? So you have to put yourself out there a bit. Right, which is mm-hmm. hard, which is hard if you're a natural introvert. It is. But yeah, you're right. Like no, no, no risk, no reward. I mean, no risk, no reward. And how much is different for everybody? Some people don't need a ton of human interaction, but just enough. And that's okay too. Right. As long as it's enough for you and you feel fulfilled. Not everybody needs to be an extrovert. And maybe it's a little bit on the extroverts to be like setting the example or launching the conversation so the introverts can feel more welcome. Yes. Yes, that's true. Yes, there is that yin and yang. And the extroverts need the introverts too to know when to be more contemplative and and, um, quiet. Oh, absolutely. I know Mm -hmm. that I need need introverts in my life or I will just open my mouth and never close it. (laughs) Yeah. Oh. Are you on the, well, you must be on the, well, maybe not. Are you on the more extroverted side? Oh, or yes. More sure. extroverted. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, when I was a little, when I was a kid, I was definitely more of an introvert, but it was because, yeah, nobody asked me about my internal experience. And I felt that if they did, they wouldn't understand what I had to say. And the older I got, the more I got into performing. And my inner child got to speak on stage, basically. It, it really helped me feel comfortable talking to anybody. That's yeah. wonderful, especially now as host of a, of a great podcast. <laughs> well, you, did you perform? Yeah. Oh, I have a background as an actor and a comedian. This is, oh. yeah, this is, uh, I, I accidentally got into tech sort of through a side door, but I'm definitely, yeah. I am definitely a performer and I just love the spontaneity of connecting with people in a public forum. I don't know why, but. That's wonderful. You do it well. Thank you. Well, Linda, 
we're already almost at an hour, um, which is insane. Oh, time um, is so fast. And <laughs> I always end every episode with, uh, with a question from the Zany database that has nothing to do with what we've been talking about, or maybe it does. So the one that I selected at random for you is, is there an animal that you've always found fascinating or been drawn to and why? Oh, I was waiting for this question. I heard you in other podcasts. And <laughs> How juicy, I love it. Yeah. <laughs> oh, and an animal that I've been drawn to, the first one that came to mind was the horse. And, and maybe because of my early childhood in California where I spent a lot of time with a horse. But there's, why am I drawn to the horse? There's something very symbi symbiotic about this um, experience you have with a horse, right? They're, they can't talk, they're huge, mm -hmm. and often people are intimidated by them. Mm -hmm. They're often very gentle by nature, but they're just so big and they can be clumsy at times and hurt you if they step on you. <laughs> they don't mean to. <laughs> and they register emotions in their ears. And as you get to know horses, you can really read a lot of their emotions by their ears. And I always found that really interesting about the horse that they're, they don't wear everything on their sleeve and you can't always figure them out. But when you get to know their language, very subtle language, it's often in their ears. <laughs> the way that they move them. Yeah, when they're angry, they put them flat back. <laughs> and, when they're, and when they're inquisitive and happy, they go forward. And, you know, I guess it's a little similar to dogs, but they're much more expressive, their ears. And, and what do I love about them? Well, I love their, their beauty, their, their ability to be free, but also useful. And uh, just there's something very regal about them that's yeah. always so... Oh, I love this. So admirable. <laughs> ah, it makes so much sense. They're, they're, they're quiet, but if you, if you listen carefully to their particular body language, there's yeah. all these messages. Yeah. yeah, and when you get to know a horse and you ride one for a long time, I mean, they really start to understand your body language. I mean, it becomes symbiotic. They respond to you, you respond to them. Yeah. And you're, you know, it, it's, a, it's a relationship that's very unique. It's you know, just like a squeeze in your leg or a touch of your hand. I mean, they can tell, you know, I always feel sorry for newcomers to horseback riding. They'll be on those trail rides with a horse that just takes off and takes them home because the horse feels in the, in the hands of the rider, whether they're experienced or not, they can tell. Uh, yeah. So like, oh, this is a ripe one. I'll just go run to my <laughs> hay bale, you know, and you're not going to be able to do anything about it. So they become a little evil streak too, but they can figure it out very quickly. And I find that really interesting. Yeah. So interesting. I love this. <laughs> oh my gosh. I've ridden a horse maybe one time in my life, like at a birthday party when I was 10 and it was terrifying. Terrifying. Right. Yeah. But I love this. Awesome. Yeah. Well, Linda, tell the listeners where they can find more about you, where they can find your book. Oh, Yes, so my book is All's Fair and Other California Stories. It's available uh, in many bookstores as well as Amazon and bookshop.org, which I always recommend because you can yes. support locals if you have the time to wait. And my website is lindafader.com. Uh, and you can learn about my book and also my practice and how I see the two blending, human storytelling. Uh, I'm also on Instagram at lynda.fader yes. um, if you want to follow me, but thank you. 
thank you for giving me that. This has been so wonderful, and I really appreciate all of the work you're doing to illuminate humanity. So thank you for talking to me. Thank you very much. What a pleasure. Thanks for tuning in to episode 36 of What's Betwixt Us? Stories of Working Wild Human. To learn more about Linda's practice and her writing, and to buy her book, please visit lindafader.com. What's Betwixt Us is powered by Zany, designed to build trust and authentic human connection in remote workspaces. More at zanie.app. Human first, everything else after. Human first, everything else after.